0: Hello, this is Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred Podcast. And today I have a, a, a friend of mine and a special guest. And I have no uh, problem that uh, Ben and I can talk for much longer than the hour I've allotted for this show. So as you know, the Living Undeterred Podcast is uh, was put together um, uh, a project of mine to try to find people that are like-minded. People that are, have been through some either personal adversity or some traumatic event and then are very active in, in, in putting back into the community, um, not only to help others, but for selfishly to help ourselves. Uh, part of my journey has been personal healing, and I kind of figured that I couldn't help people unless I helped myself first. And I think Ben Rogers would agree with that statement. So today, we're gonna have a great conversation. Ben is one of the first guests I've had that's actually local here. So we can spend a lot of time talking about some of the issues going on in uh, in um, Lynn County and, and Cedar Rapids specifically, but. Um, some of the issues we have in the state of Iowa. And um, so I'm honored to have Ben on. So Ben, I'm going to let you kind of take it from here and tell people, tell my listeners a little bit about uh, why you think I asked you on the show, a little bit about you. So again, thanks for being on the show, Ben.
1: Yeah. First of all, my first podcast. So I'm so stoked uh, <laughs> to actually join the 21st Century. I feel like I'm one of the last holdouts. And when you asked me if I'd be willing to do this, it was a real honor because I know... In the time that I've gotten to know you, just how important sharing your story and allowing others to share their stories and 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 have that kind of dialogue—the the, the power that that can have—to um, normalize the human experience—and some of that involves trauma, that involves substance use disorders, it involves uh, a whole host of of things. So, thanks for being that kind of advocate and and having this platform.
0: Oh, you're you're welcome. I remember. The first time I met you was at an ASAC board meeting. Um, full disclosure, Ben and I are actually, Ben's the Ben's the president of the ASAC board now. But um, we were at a board meeting and I recognize your name. And, you know, you've, you're very uh, well known in the community for all the work that you do. And then on Facebook, boom, I see a post that you come out with your, your struggles and battles mm-hmm. and your, your vulnerability you had with alcoholism and wow my my respect level went through the roof. I even get chills telling this because I'm like mm-hmm. well, how impressive it is for you to um to bring this out in a situation where you're a public figure um and so I, we'll get to that eventually but I that's how I first sure. met you and I thought wow, this is awesome I gotta uh, I gotta follow this guy's journey a little bit better and then some of the posts you made on Facebook were just heroic I guess man I don't know what else to say I mean to come out and talk about what you've talked about so um you know i don't know I, don't, I wouldn't say confidently but just so openly you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and yeah confidently i mean i, I know alcoholism can be a minute by minute battle for many people um but i guess i'll throw that out there for you i mean you you got so involved in all these things was some of that stemming from some of the issues you had with your own personal demons i guess and, and some of these things you were fighting through you thought maybe the the way to deal with this is to get involved
1: Yeah, that's, that's precisely it. It also was a way I think to help make sense of, uh, being a public figure struggling with something privately, Mm -hmm. but recognizing what an opportunity to share that with others. And, uh, so my journey really started, uh, years ago. I mean, I was, uh, in elected office, I've been in elected office since two thousand and nine, and my drinking really kind of uh, became an issue shortly after. I, I'd al- I think I'd always struggled with alcohol, but it was really starting uh, after that. And I was I remained very quiet about it, and I also remained very quiet about my challenges, uh, my own brain health issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I on, on September fifteenth of two thousand and fourteen, I decided time to quit. And in fact, I Mm. just had a therapy appointment. And I drew up a contract with my therapist, because at that time, I was just gonna, I was just gonna take a 30 day breather from alcohol, I do these 30 day challenges every every once in a while, like a body transformation challenge, or try and right size my diet. And it was, I normally do well on those. Mm -hmm. But then, like most people, I revert back to my original patterns of behavior. Mm -hmm. So my therapist and I drew up a contract where just gonna take a 30 day break. Hmm. And if I had a drink, I had to write a personal check to either Steve King, Representative Steve King, or yeah. uh, like Joni Ernst. People I am just politically, diametrically on the opposite ends <laughs> of the political spectrum.
0: Oh, and the reason I, I would it. have to
1: write a check I I would have, because that check that check would have to be um, disclosed, right? It would oh, in, in wow. a finance report it would show Ben Rogers wrote a $50 check to, and it would, it would startle people why I would give money to someone that I'm just so diametrically opposed to. I was like, Oh,
0: that's genius I this, though.
1: I got this in the that's bag. Genius. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so we both signed it and I had done previous times where I'd quit for like, or stopped rather for like 30 days, 40 yeah. days. But then I was within having a, that first sip again. I was back. My, 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 My drink of choice was like wine. I would go through a bottle of wine a night and then sometimes that wouldn't do it. So I would do Heineken, right? So I was always drinking. Uh, I would go from a glass to the full bottle in just a matter of a day or two. I mean, I would revert back to just old patterns and behaviors. And so I still have that contract. That's awesome. That was, yeah, September 15th of 2014. Haven't really looked back since, but really, People knew my story close to friends and associates, but I'd never been really public about it. And then, and then I, there was a point in time where it's like you know you have a voice, you have a platform, uh, and it's important for people to recognize that alcoholism. It doesn't matter if you're successful, if you have a title, if you were right. held as you know held a lot as a child had all your needs and wants met right doesn't matter and so i actually wrote that guest editorial that was the 5th anniversary of my date of sobriety what was really challenging it was also about 2 months after my father had just unexpectedly passed away oh wow and i went to my mother to just give her a heads up hey i want to i want to celebrate this milestone publicly disclosing my journey Mm -hmm. And she was absolutely, I mean, we were just in the early stages of grief and trauma and it was, can you, and, and, and alcoholism or drug addiction, while it happens to the person, the ripple effects happen, you know, it it affects your, your loved ones, your family, some understand it and some just don't. And for Mm -hmm. my mom, that was a really difficult because I think she wanted to protect me, right? It Mm -hmm. wasn't, don't disclose it. It's. There could be a lot of blowback. And I just said, I have to be my own person. And I wrote it. And I remember when it when it when it came online, I broke out into sweats. I bet because I was like, it's it's real. It Yeah, it's it's out there. And but the barrage of warmth and love and support and thank yous. And I didn't know that about you. And then people disclosing, hey, I'm an alcoholic as well. Or I'm in yeah. recovery or I. I, I understand what you're going through. It just, I didn't do it for that. I did it to say, I'm an elected official. I've lived in this community my whole life. And oh, by the way, this is something about me that you don't know, but I'd like to reduce stigma. It's part of the human condition. There's the the remarkable thing about my story is how unremarkable it truly is. Hmm. And I think we get really lost in, uh, you know, that we don't think that these types of situations uh, conditions can affect people who obtained a certain, maybe level of wealth or level of experience or a title. And it's like, no, no, this condition doesn't, this disease doesn't care. And, uh, and so I felt, I I needed to do this for myself. Right. Right. That's the only, I, and I wanted to empower others and it's one of the best decisions I've ever made.
0: Well, the interesting part of this whole conversation, Ben is if, if the way people are dealing with these things is actually working, then why is every statistic with suicide, depression, uh, alcoholism, overdose, every statistic is higher than it was five, 10, 15 years ago. So the way that we have been dealing with these things as humans simply isn't working. And the way we've been dealing with it is to keep it inside and to not talk about it and to run around with, labels on our foreheads you know I, I love the way you said i quit and then you pivoted to stop i wrote that down yeah. because i don't tell people i quit drinking i tell people today i choose not to drink as a matter of fact yeah i know that i know that i know the day i i quit but i don't keep score i i just and i see now people on social media starting to kind of join this movement where they're not there's not as many people posting the signs i've been sober at 1000 because my thought was okay i'm not a robot i'm a human and I understand, I understand the, the, um, the game that you're told to play, like you had to write a check. I mean, you know, I understand that part. But if you break down and you have an alcoholic beverage after a thousand days of being sober, that doesn't make you a failure. That doesn't make you a bad person. That means you just made a really poor choice that particular moment in your life. And that's why I don't keep score. And I love the way you said I, you stopped. I just, I don't even go that far. I just say I choose not to drink anymore. And... You know, it's kind of it's kind of nice to say December twenty fourth, two thousand and seventeen, and my reasons were believe it or not weren't for me. It was to benefit somebody else in my life. I was I was caring about that time, mm-hmm. but I found out I found out for me, Ben, it was just I didn't miss it. Yeah, you know, I'm fifty five. I'm older than you, and hangovers suck. I mean, it, you know, it was yeah. it was taking me half a day to full day to to get over just having a few beers, grill a night the night before, and I'm like, you know, I don't. I don't enjoy this. And then obviously, you know, all these things happen in my personal life. And um, uh, for me, it's been a rather easy thing to do. And I understand for some people, they wake up every day and it's a freaking fist fight. And I can't explain it. Um, I, now, for you, is it, a, is it a relatively easy thing for you to deal with?
1: I almost feel guilty that it's I been know. so e- that That for me, it was a switch. And yeah, I'm the type of person, the way that my addictive personality works when I get really fed up with something, I was a pack a day smoker in college.
0: Wow. I didn't and I know. went,
1: yeah, I have addictive, uh, you know, uh, thoughts, behaviors, and patterns. I was, yeah. a, I ran track and cross country in high school. So running has been a really important part of my mental wellness. And just, it's how I kind of, I, I run to forget. I, I run just to mm-hmm. shut the world out or I run to figure the world out. I went right. for a run one day, and I and I I couldn't finish it. It's one of the few times I've ever had to walk, and I was mm. done. So I I'm I'm kind of able to flip off a switch, break the switch, but the switch mm. will always be there. It's just not as accessible, and so and I do a lot of Native American sweat lodges, and and so do uh, people in oh. recovery. Uh, do them. Um, I, I do it at Prairie Woods, uh, and and I've met a lot of people who are in recovery, and. They share stories of it is a minute to minute fight and they are, some people are just always on the razor's edge of, of making that decision to use or drink. And for me, it was, it was, it was easy. It was, I have to, I need to be done and I don't enjoy it anymore. And I'm not benefiting from this, but I recognize that for some other people, it is, they, they, they struggle. And they struggle every day. And I know what it's like to have that voice in your head. Yeah. You just have a drink. You, you can do one. It's this friction. It's this weird. And, and some people who don't, what's been really interesting is trying to, to describe what it's like to alcoholism to people. And right. it's just sort of this internal battle. And I would always have this voice in my head where I'd be like, God, I don't want to drink today because right. I'm hungover. Right. And it's a Tuesday, right? I'm hungover. <laughs> I don't want to, but I know the way to silence that voice, and that's to uncork the wine, pour that first glass. That voice right. disappears. That friction right. no longer exists in my mind, and and then I would get down on myself, like, "Ugh, you you have right. no willpower." And then I, I I soon discovered this isn't a battle of willpower because if that's the case, then this willpower has kept me. I've chosen not to drink now for almost seven years. So it's not a case of willpower uh, or lack of willpower, but it's this internal friction. And once you're able to really start dealing with it uh, with some clarity, you recognize that you do have some power. And I really, what I want to introduce back to your book, this idea of choice versus disease.
0: Yeah. I thought I'd ask you about that on today.
1: Really? I, I, I didn't know which camp I fall in. I mean, it, it's, I recognize it as a disease, but there was a choice to drink and I'm mm-hmm. not one of those. Uh, I, 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 I never went to a 12 step program. I, didn't I never went that. to, I've never been to an AA meeting. So my journey t- with sobriety is very different than other people who, you know, they have sponsor or sponsors. They, right. they attend meetings frequently, you know, they've read Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you know, it reminded me when I read this, kind of like, uh, you know, cancer is a disease, mm-hmm. and you can either choose to eat junk food and live your life, you know, and 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 treat your body terribly on cancer, or you can choose to eat well, do what's required to kind of uh, empower your body to to try and deal with cancer as well as all the different therapeutics. Um, that's your choice. That's your choice yeah. what to put in your body. You don't necessarily get to choose the disease, but you, I think you get to choose, to a certain degree, how you approach it.
0: Yeah, uh, and you um, I, I really appreciate the kind words you said about the book, too. Um, before we went on air, you said some, some awesome comments and um, that was a tough book to write. You know, It took a year of my life, but it also pulled a lot out of me. I, I kind of reflect on the whole process and think of what I lost, but then think of what I've gained. You know, the conversations yeah. I've had with people I never would have had. But going back to the disease and choice thing, Ben, and I i knew at some point we were going to kind of gravitate to that because I i had a compulsive gambling problem in my 30s and 40s. And i never talk about this publicly. And as a financial planner, I, st- I still am a licensed uh, chartered financial mm-hmm. consultant. I still own Premier Investments of Iowa. I don't see clients day to day, but... To bring that up in my industry is a big risk. But then again, mm-hmm. you took a risk when you talked about your alcoholism as a public figure. And I think at some point, you know, you just kind of step up to the plate and say, okay, I'm ready to deal with these things. And by talking about those issues, I learned I had a highly addictive personality. And thank thank you, I never did drugs because I would have been Len Bias. Um, you know, the, the Maryland basketball player that did cocaine right. the night he got drafted and he died. I, I would... I wouldn't want to do one line of Coke. I would want to do all the Coke and, and that would be my problem with drugs. And so I've never done drugs. So I didn't, I never wanted to find out if I would be addicted to drugs, but I know like you, I have an addictive personality. So, um, disease and choice. If I had to draw, draw a line in the sand, I would say it's not disease versus choice. It's disease and choice. And there's right. always a, there's always a biological activation. To an addiction. So let's say I have a predisposition that my grandparents were alcoholics or my parents were. It doesn't mean I'm I'm predetermined to drink. I still at some point have a series of choices before that bottle of alcohol hits my mouth. You know, I can go to the store and not buy it. I cannot have it in my refrigerator. I can. There's things I can do to lead up to that. So um, I don't know where I stand on that, but I guess if I had the proverbial gun to my head, I would lean on more of the choice. I think we don't give our brain enough credit and how powerful it can be. And I think we're too, too apt to just kind of give in to the, the road of least resistance is to crack that beer, you know? And there's more Ben Rogers and Jeff Johnstons out there that I guarantee you are struggling with this. But if they found the right switch, as you say, something can happen. I realized, Ben, that I, I wasn't that smart. So I've tricked my brain. I've, I've got my brain to believe things that probably aren't true. And I've done that with a lot of things in my life. And so by virtue of having that approach, kind of a kind of a reframing of my life. It's a great stoic philosophy. My blog this week's on the concept of reframing. I just love that. You take a position and you kind of turn it around and look at the same thing from a different angle, and it changes your quality of life immensely. But anyway, I just thought I would kind of jump in on that um disease versus choice. Because that's there is no answer. It's like nature versus nurture, right?
1: Right. And I love, like in your book, where you talk about you have the freedom or the choice. I, I want to find it. But it is about reframing that you don't have to believe the story you've told yourself. You can right. believe right. differently. You can reframe your past differently. You don't have right. to hang on to that first or long-held belief. Because it it may be that it was wrong right. the whole it's just not the way you see, it's not who you are. Right. And I so appreciated, uh, talking about that, where it was, mm-hmm. you're right. Uh, one of the things, and I just got it tattooed on my arm. It's a Latin oh, wow. saying it's, it's non sum qualis Aram. It's, a. I I was going through my f- divorce. I've been married once before and I was watching a YouTube. I watched a lot of, uh, 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 videos uh, and somehow stumbled upon uh, uh, this one where this this gentleman was talking about his famous his favorite Roman poet Horace and he said something mm, like absolutely non sum qualis eram which means I'm not as I once was or was, I'm not as I am right and I sat up in bed and I replayed it non sum qualis I'm not as I once was and it has stuck with me my whole well, that, that 10 years, and I finally wanted to make it permanent, but it's this idea that you, you're not as you once were. And that's not a bad thing. I've had to convince my wife that that was not a, that's, that doesn't mean I long for my youth where I could do things now. And and now I'm married with kids and not as I once was, it's, whoa, I'm a father now. So I'm not as I once was right. I'm 41. So I'm not as my body is not as it once was. Right. And the idea of, of, we do, we we don't we aren't we don't have to be what we've thought what we've thought ourselves to be or we think right. of ourselves that there is that space for change and then it dives also into which i like that you touched on it's both a, a stoic philosophy and a buddhist philosophy of impermanence that everything I was will just going to say that everything, word
0: i was just going to say that word yep
1: everything changes right and and, and I think the stories that we tell ourselves should also change because it's mm-hmm. probably not true. And the lens through which you look at it changes right. as you go through life. And, and, and I just love that. And after reading your philosophy and that about undeterred and that that's been sort of a word that has carried you since your youth, since you were right. young of living undeterred and what that meant for you, I thought, you know, what would be my word? And, huh. and I didn't leave the 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 un family unfinished. Mine would be unfinished. Um, And that's kind of part of that non-sum qualis rum. I'm not as I once was. I am an unfinished piece of work. And, but there will come a time where I will be finished. So I'm not, I'm unfinished until I truly am finished. And that leaves a a tremendous amount of space for me to be whomever I want to be. It's, it allows me to look back on my life and reframe it. And it allows me, it reminds me that I'm not I don't have to be anything. Mm -hmm. And I can choose to be I can look at myself differently. And it leaves just an incredible amount of space for growth, and for reframing. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to get stuck with the idea of I want to look a certain way. Uh, I want to think a certain way. It just it sort of evaporates when you when you look at life that way, some of those obstacles just seem to evaporate. And you mentioned, Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just, it's, for me, it's sort of this, I, I've, as i get, as I'm getting older, the idea of impermanence mm-hmm. of, of constant state of change and that, uh, that it, it sort of helps refocus my own mortality and it makes it less, I'm less fearful of death. And and Stoics talk about keep death in front of you. And it doesn't mean think about hmm. it all the time, but recognize that it is inevitable. You don't get to choose death you get to choose how much you suffer and that's in your mind and that was in your book right uh there's two things death and suffering and one of these we can actually change right uh so keeping it in front of you that at some point this life will end and so there are some things that you should consider important and there's just some things that
0: aren't i have so many i mean i have like a full page of notes maybe maybe i should be a guest on your show <laughs> um <laughs> But this is awesome stuff because I think you and I are so similar in, in a lot of our our ways of thinking. And you had a epiphany moment with this quote from Horace. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm. my moment, my one phrase that really changed my life was in Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. And anybody anybody who follows my story, I I quote this like it's you know a a you know it's it's one of the probably the best most impactful book I've ever read in my life. And he says suffering is my opportunity and what i was at a poolside and my son was golfing and i'm reading man's search for meaning and just like you popped out of bed i just saw suffering is my opportunity i like holy shit that's a that's it that's that's the phrase i've been looking for and this was after my son had died um, i'm looking for to get me to turn this to reframe this pain that i had losing a child to heroin and then just limit my suffering can kind of compartmentalize it. And I rephrased it, Ben, to pain is unavoidable. Suffering is a choice. And so that's my, that's my mantra as I go out and speak to groups or I do interviews, I say pain is unavoidable, but suffering is a choice. And I, I firmly believe that the, Seth's death was in all sense of purposes. If you're a believer of fate, then obviously it was unavoidable. Um, I'm not a believer of faith. I believe fate. Um, I, I believe it was a, a, a part of his level of bad choices he made and it caught up with him. But again, if you can look at the, the death, the act of death as something, A, it happens to all of us. And he was on a road where that probability was high when you're hmm. dancing with those things. And that when that actually happened... I I was on like two roads. I talked about in my book, you know, Ben, that chapter, two roads. You know, I told the boys we have two roads to go down. You can do the two roads with everything in your life. You know, you're looking at a beer, you know, and you're an alcoholic. I have two roads to go down. I can crack open that beer and I know what the road's going to be like. I know exactly what's going to happen. Shame, Mm -hmm. guilt, regret, anger, or I can choose not to. And I know what that road's going to be like as well. So, you know, in advance what the probable outcomes on these roads, but then why do we keep making the wrong choices? And that's kind of where I'm trying to get this a little dialed down so we can, you know, we, all my guests, all the people that have been on this living undeterred journey of mine, you know, we can get together and try to help people. And you know, this is Mental Health Awareness Month. And, mm-hmm. you know, Ben, you've been a massive advocate for many things in regards to mental health, but there's a big one, the Lynn County Access Center, that yeah. is something is something I want to kind of segue into um why don't you explain where this idea came from I think I know um there's 3.7 million people in treatment right now and there's 14,000 treatment facilities so there's a lot of people hurting there's a lot of people that need go need places to go get help but how did this Lynn County Access Center come about where did the idea come from and I know you guys just had your, your opening and how is it going right now in regards to, um, you know, you guys opening. And uh, why don't you take it a little bit from here and explain exactly what the Lynn County Access Center is. And again, it's an awesome thing you guys are doing there.
1: Thank you so much for that. So for your listeners, uh, a mental health access center is not something that is new nationally. They, they're almost in every state. It's, it's a new service in Iowa. And essentially, it is a 24-7, 365 service. And the vast majority of them are voluntary. You can walk in. You can be referred hmm. uh, to treat a crisis situation, uh, a, a mental health crisis, or, and or a substance use disorder. And many times and oftentimes, people seek treatment for either a crisis or their substance use by going to the emergency room because the community they live in may not have a robust uh, service, a lot of service providers like we're lucky to have here in Cedar Rapids. So people come in contact with law enforcement. Law enforcement says, what you're doing is not enough to go to jail and you're not sick enough to go to hospital, like into a psychiatric ward. But if we're gonna divert you where can we safely divert you to? Right. The answer to that question is a mental health access center. Mm. And so, what we, we what we did here in Lynn County is we were sort of sort of the uh, stars aligned, sort of fate mm. and opportunity, um, or just opportunity and seizing on it. Uh, we had a bunch of mental health dollars that had to be spent. We had a Lynn County building that was vacant that used to be a public health building that's right next to the Community Mental Health Center. And we had several service providers that said, we're on board. And those providers are Area Substance Abuse Council, Foundation Two, who does like mobile crisis outreach, uh, the Penn Center, which is a subsidiary of Abbey Community Mental Health. And it really sort of became this, uh, let's change how we treat and assist people with who find themselves in crisis, who don't Mm -hmm. have the coping mechanisms or the skills at that time to deal with whatever it is that they're dealing with. And that going to the emergency room is the most costly form of treatment. And oftentimes the most inappropriate form of treatment. Right, right. And certainly jail is the wrong place to go if what you're dealing with is a a mental health crisis.
0: And most are. But there was
1: no real, and most are, and there was no real in between. And so we dedicated a tremendous amount of resources to this creation of a mental health access center in coordination and cooperation with these four providers. And we were able to, in less than four years, from sort of this idea, conceiving of, uh, you know, hey, we have these dollars, let's use them to create this mm-hmm. service. And then we found a building. And then the question was, is this model sustainable given Iowa, how, how Iowa funds mental health and reimburses counties and providers and at the level in which they provide them. And we said, we almost said, we'll figure out, we'll figure out if it's sustainable later, let's build the airplane first, and then we'll figure (laughs) out how to maintain it once it's in the air. And that's what we did. And in less than four years, there is now a brand new service that's open. So people can walk in, or be referred by by law enforcement or the hospitals, and they can go in if they just need twenty. If they just need a few hours to deescalate. There's a service available for them. If they need to get out of the situation that they're in for three to five days, they can do that. If they are building up the courage to finally tackle or address their substance use disorder and they need to detox, they can do that at the mm-hmm. mental health access center. And the, and the best part is there's also other services that if you need longer term, the access center will direct them to these longer term services. And then they do all the follow-up to ensure, hey, did you get the level of service you need? What else can be provided for you? And it's a revolving door. If you need to come back the next day, come back. There's no limit to how many times you can come in for these services.
0: So, Ben, in looking at my personal situation, I'm sure there's people watching this that have a um, a, a child that, um, you know, is possible candidate to using these services. I go back to when Seth had his issues, at, you know, at 15. And then um, uh, when he actually had overdosed once and was in the ER and then got released. And I called ASAC, I think, on a Friday. I write about this in my book. And I said...
1: Yeah, my son. Powerful. And
0: I didn't know who to. I Ben, I didn't know if I needed to call a, a, a the police. Have, uh I didn't know if I needed to call the fire department, a psychologist, uh, an emergency. I had no idea. You know, as as many dads are and moms. There's no template out there. There's there's no right. Oh, here here's step one. Do this, and it's like all I was doing was making up stuff on the fly. Well, I called ASAC. They didn't have a bed. I said, my son's going to be dead by Monday if I don't get a bed. Well, they called right back like within an hour and I got him in. That was my first experience on this process, this arduous process of trying to find out where to put my son. I couldn't take care of him. That's I'm just a dad, man. I'm not licensed mm-hmm. or certified in any of these things. So is this now where I would have put Seth?
1: So right now this service is for adults. Uh, okay. But we are actually working on trying to create a juvenile, whether it's a, a physical location or it's a a different type of service for children, because hopefully children become adults and certainly what children age are adults? Health, 18.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: And and it just has to do with mixing certain populations together, right? Oh, so yeah. if you're in yep. crisis yep. and you're in substance, yeah. so, but we, but we wouldn't turn away someone if they had their kids with them, like, I'm in a domestic violence situation i'm in crisis i have my kids we'll figure that out so it's not like well you have children you need to leave them at the front door you can come in but like you i mean i i I i've had some loved ones and 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 friends who i've i've loved um who had substance abuse issues that back in the 90s and early 2000s same sort of thing of there's no blueprint for this if you're encountering it for the first time and 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 don't know where to turn and so you naturally turn to the hospital in fact i there's a, a, a community group called crush and i think it's like communities yeah. i uh, it, it's, it has with, to do with uh I, heroin opioids right yeah, opioids, opioids and heroin yeah. it's it's you know communities yeah. resilient to uh, stopping heroin united yeah. in stopping heroin and and i was invited to sit in a group setting and to really learn about the program and one of the one of the um family members who was there with their child talked about when they, when they finally discovered that their child was doing heroin and they said, you know, here we are oblivious to the fact that our child was doing this. And now we've become aware. And we, we thought we could just simply go to the hospital, drop them off. They'll go into detox and we'll pick them up 30 days later. And everyone in the room just kind of started giggling and laughing yeah, because they knew that's not, that's not, the reality. And, the, and, the, and right. the parents didn't feel that p- those people were laughing at them because they were laughing with them. They were just like, we thought we could just go to the hospital. And everyone just starts laughing like, yeah, no. But for many people, they just get swallowed up in this. Where do I take my loved one? And right. I read in your book that that passage about calling up my, my son will not be alive. Right in the next 24, 48 hours. And, and you write about I don't know who made the decision or who they had to talk to, but they got him in and and you almost think what if someone didn't, if they didn't yeah. make that call, or if they couldn't have gotten right. that staff member to say, we'll make it work Right. and people find themselves powerless. They don't know where to turn and it's no fault of their own. It's just, and I think Ben Carson said it in here and mm-hmm. I'm I really sort of appreciated we should have as many treatment centers as there are yeah. patients or, or something like that. It was a really yeah, profound, yep. like,
0: huh, it's like the accessibility, the accessibility needs to be as yeah. easy as it is to get the drugs or something like that. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. Which was just spot we on. We need to make treatment as easy. Yes. Yeah, spot yep. on. We need yep. to make
1: treatment as accessible and easy as getting the drugs. Right. You're darn right. But parents and loved ones have to jump through tremendous hoops. They have to call in like, and say the, they will die they, they will yeah, not be alive by the next time yeah. we have this conversation and it is the un- you know that we don't have a lot of beds available we don't have a ton of services and it is sometimes i i, I think that families are it's it's the hunger games may the odds be in your favor good luck
0: yeah and, and you know ben i i've done a lot of thinking about this as i was kind of designing uh this living undeterred project it's like you know you probably have the same uh observation in in what you're doing we can't save everyone and where is my attention most needed or most focused or most effective and i've i've got to the point where i think where i'm going to be putting in most of my time is with the kids because kind of the prehabituation kind of instead of rehab get into prehab instead of taking a 40-year-old housewife that drinks two bottles of wine and trying to get her to go to meetings and change behavior. Maybe if we can get to these 40-year-old housewives or, or husbands before they become these people and go back to seventh grade, the age of first use is 14 in the United States. Mm-hmm. 14 years old, which how I opened my book was a conversation I had at Prairie with a young man that came up to me and told me he had been in rehab. And was, I think, possibly he'd been a patient at at ASAC too. I don't remember his whole story, but he did tell me quite a bit. But anywho, um, 14 and he'd been in rehab. And I thought, wow. I mean, the stats say that if you can get through 18 without having addiction issues, you have this 82% probability of never having problems with substance abuse the rest of your life. If you can get through the age of 18. So I know that where you're spending a majority of your time and where probably most of society is, is working with the people that really need the help right now. And that's, that's obviously well needed. I'm thinking more of the next couple of years of trying to design programs where I can get into the kids and we can get in front of these kids before they become alcoholics. And with the combination of both, then we can maybe get that age 18 threshold. And get some of these kids to get these kids to punch through and get the next generation of ambassadors and not not people that are in treatment all the time, you know, because there's no question the easiest way to quit something is to never start. And that sounds so, you know, that sounds so uh, old fashioned, like, well, yeah, I know that, Jeff. But the reality is it's true, you know, for every kid, every kid in seventh grade that decides not to vape um, or decides not to, um, you know, drink alcohol at a football game. That's one more kid that has a chance to get through the age of 18. And that's a higher probability that one child won't have a problem with substance abuse. So you're right. It's a game of numbers in a way. It's it is a mathematical um, challenge we're up against. But um, let me ask you another question Ben. this has been on my mind to ask you all day. What's your thoughts on uh, legalization of marijuana? And where do you see this as a potential Tipping point for kids, primarily for adolescents, um, going forwards. Do you see it as a as a problem?
1: You know, so first, I think that's a great question. Um, I'm where I am in my life now, uh, I, and I think I would have said this probably in my youth as well. Is that uh, you know we have legalization of of alcohol, of gambling cigarettes and other vices i I don't really see necessarily marijuana as any different better or worse than Mm -hmm. alcohol tobacco uh Mm -hmm. i see it really as a as a uh, states are doing it to to generate revenue
0: absolutely and
1: and and certainly like gambling there's always going to be a percentage of the population that will become addicted same with cigarettes same with alcohol uh right So I do see it as states looking to diversify revenue streams. How can we fix roads? How can we improve our schools? And states that do this, obviously, the way that they sell it is that they tax it at a very high rate, and then treatment providers come in and say, there's got to be money for treatment. If you're going to do this, you're going to do it. But at least we have to increase prevention, awareness, and treatment. And so I do see it as kind of a wave that's happening that... I'm not saying it's unstoppable, but almost every state around us, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, pretty soon probably Missouri and Nebraska will pass uh, mm-hmm. legalized recreational marijuana. And Iowa will either be a holdout or eventually that day will come. And I, I recognize that I have an addiction to alcohol, but that doesn't mean that no one should be able to drink alcohol. And I recognize right, that there absolutely. are people that they start yep. using their gateway yep. or the, they, they, they may enter into using marijuana and then it may escalate or not. Um, that if we're, if we're going to do this, that I, I would certainly want money to go towards treatment. And I certainly, I mean, with the, with the legalization of, of marijuana, it's not for me necessarily the, 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 it just now it's becomes available. It's we stop incarcerating people for nonviolent criminal offenses as it relates to this, this drug. So for me, it's more of the, we really need to change how we're prosecuting people that change the the trajectory of their life. It makes that it makes it harder for them to get into apartments, to get a mortgage, to get jobs, it just cripples and, and then they get sucked into this vortex. And so for me, Primarily, it's, we need to change how we are uh, uh, prosecuting people. And also, if it's gonna be recreational, then we need to make sure that people have the ability to then seek treatment, that Ben Carson model. If it's easy to get marijuana, it should be very easy then to get some kind of treatment or that parents can have prevention tools that, that actually speak to their children and not so, speak at them, but speak to them. Yeah. I just, so, I mean, I, I guess if you're asking me, I'm, I'm not opposed to, to recreational marijuana being, being passed. It has to come with treatment dollars, like, like, uh, when, uh, for cigarettes, they, you know, they, they peel off a certain portion for nicotine, uh, addiction and awareness, same thing with alcohol. Right. Uh, so I recognize that I have an addiction to, to substance and chemicals. Um, yeah. but there is a good argument to be made that uh, other states and federally we're having conversations about uh, legalizing it for recreational med- medicinal use and certainly you need to have a treatment component attached to it so that people who do struggle with it can can at least get into some some type of treatment or get some kind of assistance
0: it goes back again talking to our kids you mentioned uh, you know drinking and out smoking and all that um, and, and marijuana is just going to be added to that list of legal things here shortly. Mm-hmm. But as I tell a lot of the kids I speak to, in, in some of my presentations, is just because something's legal doesn't mean you have to do it. And right, and that, and that, and that, that I think I was talking to a couple twenty year olds. My son's twenty, um, or soon to be in three mm-hmm. days, Ian, and he had some of his friends over. And They were talking about you know going out to Vegas when they're twenty one and celebrating their stuff. And then I asked him, I said, "What do you guys think about legalized marijuana?" And they're like, "Well, they told me what I would expect." They're going to say to a, to an adult, you know? Um, but it was interesting how the way they were saying it was like, almost like they weren't saying what I just said that just cause it's legal, you don't have to do it. They were more like they were compelled to now that it is legal, that they, it, it's a weird way how they worded it. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I think for some kids, they think when they're 21, that they have to go out and drink, you know, mm-hmm. because now they're quote legal. Well, marijuana is the same thing. Just because it comes legal, I think as parents, we have to tell our kids. So what? For you individually, it's a, it's a non-event. I mean, it's a meaningless uh, event when marijuana becomes... They could legalize every drug. They, it could be on every street corner for free, Ben. I still wouldn't do it at 55 years old. It could be free. Right. I wouldn't do it. But, but not everybody has the Ben Rogers, Jeff Johnston switch. You know, um, and you and I both are admitted addiction candidates and but we both have this internal switch so um let me ask you another question about harm reduction i i'm not an expert in this area by far but i've run into a lot of people on on specifically on on linkedin some advocates for harm reduction and i think to myself you know if seth if there would have been a label on the heroin needle that seth put in his arm or if the dealer could have tested it um which obviously you know these, these are pipe dreams but i'm thinking to get to Mars, you have to have a freaking pipe dream, right? You got to have a goal that's impossible at some point. Do you think we'll ever reach a point where we'll be able to test heroin on the street? So at least someone could get high and not be putting, you know, fentanyl in their system and not get a second chance. I mean, I mean, this sounds terrible from a dad who lost his son to heroin, but I'm not going to go out and, and catch all the people selling drugs, but I definitely think I can get to people before they do it. But how about the people already using it? Do you think we'll ever get there?
1: I hope so. I hope that we get to a place like other countries, really progressive countries, where they have needle exchange programs, recognizing that people are going to do this. So let's ensure if they're going to do it, that they do it in a safe environment. They're not uh, sharing needles. They're not throwing it, uh, you know, disposing of needles in parks where children are playing. Absolutely. That if they're going to do a drug, uh, that... That yeah, I I I think this is the first time where I've heard you know the the, the testing ability to 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 do it and be like oh yeah this has fentanyl in it, yeah or this is you know th- there's other substances in here um, that you're, that it sort of helps people do it more responsibly because you know they're going to do it you you may not be able to stop them doing it what you really want them to do is if they're going to do it do it in a in a, in a manner that's safe. But then you can also be in an environment where you can talk to them and approach them and say are you have you thought about sobriety have you mm-hmm. thought about detoxing because i think I, i've never been an addict like on heroin or meth or or right. or, or even alcohol where it's the withdrawal is this or the, the sickness that comes with the withdrawal mm-hmm. and i and i've read a lot of stories of people who um, uh, for heroin or opioids where they're mm-hmm. like it's the sickness that I, I don't want to mm-hmm. feel that level of sick. The withdrawals mm-hmm. scare me to death. And mm-hmm. that's the reason why I don't want to quit. So you 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 create an environment where you can at least talk with them and approach them and and then have a variety of services to help people wean or get off of, of the drug. But if but if we just treat them like criminals or just say, this is bad what you're doing, it's illegal, we're going to arrest you. You're not dealing with the problem. And the problem really is trying to do harm reduction allowing for the safe exchange of needles, um, or if someone's overdosing, uh, creating an incentive for them to call the police instead of like, if they have dope all around, they're not going to call the police to come in. If there was, and that's part of harm reduction that, you know, if police enter into a a place where someone has called and they're, and they've overdosed that they're not going to arrest the other people for the paraphernalia. It's, there's a medical condition here. We need to deal with that. Yeah. Creating a culture where people are like, someone is dying in my house. I'm calling you because I don't want them to die, but I have needles and heroin or meth. Yeah. or. So I, I don't know. It it, it would ta- It's going to take a substantial culture change, a lot of political change, and a lot of understanding of what is harm reduction. Because I think it's very easy for people to be dismissive of addicts and just saying, if you really oh, wanted to be done with it, you would be done with it. It's you pull yourself up by your bootstraps,
0: you know. Um, I mean, look what happened in the elections when when Biden's uh, son, um, yeah, came out, and and I won't even get in down this road, but some people on the other side kind of used it as well. That's a reflection of being a poor dad or whatever. I mean, it's just like, are you are we still in the in the um, the dark ages on this stuff? I mean, are we still yes. going to are we still going to take a human being and blame the parents or the environment for the way the choices this kid made? I, I mean, that 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 is just beyond uh, belief for me, but it shouldn't be because we're just in a society of people that are just completely ignorant to these things until it becomes it personal. their doorstep, yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah. like Jeff Johnston, I become very passionate, but I wouldn't be doing this right now if Seth wouldn't have died of heroin. So I, I, I get that part. But yeah, we just um we just label them as problems and uh, you know, addicts and throw away the key and um or, you know, well, wh- why test their drugs? They're just going to die anyway. They're just going to they're just going to do it anyway. And I'm like, I was talking to an addict the other day, Ben, and he he had been through I think four or five facilities, fell off the wagon a dozen times. And now he's in his 60s and he hasn't had anything for 10 years. So it is possible to fall off the wagon a dozen times Mm -hmm. and to live to be 60 and have a productive life. So we can't give up on that person that falls off the wagon many, many times. However, there is some accountability. At some point, that gentleman had that switch turn on. So Mm -hmm. what is that switch? That's what I'm trying to figure out. And I will tell you, as we kind of have another 10, 15 minutes to go, meditation has been a big thing for me, Ben. Healthy eating has been a big thing for me. Um, Exercising—I uh, I don't have ability to go run because of some knee and back problems, but I run on my elliptical, and I normally watch podcasts on topics like this, so I can—I can increase my well-being physically. But I'm not watching, you know, five hours of TikTok videos. You know, I'm, I'm watching mm-hmm. a productive conversation of two highly intelligent people on a passionate topic, and so I can really kill two birds with st- one stone right there. But for me, those have been some of my coping mechanisms: reading obsessively, writing, speaking, my blogs, my podcast, meditation, eating healthy. Did I miss any anything in there that you practice that you would like to maybe add to the the arrow? You know, add an extra arrow to the quiver of people out there that are looking for ways to, you know, fight through this every day.
1: You know, you and I are soul brothers in a lot of ways. I know I we are. Same it's crazy. We- I, I'm, I'm big into mindfulness meditation. Um, yeah. I try and eat well and and, and and exercise. I'm attracted to really intelligent debates in which you can learn different perspectives uh, on an issue. I I try not. I, I don't even know what TikTok is to be honest with you, and I don't <laughs> spend time looking at those videos. But but uh, you know, you really you really were onto something about you know. We talk about statistics, and we we use right. labels like addict. Right. Dr- and we forget that th- this is, there are humans and this yeah. is part of what it means to, there's a human condition here. And part of, part of, um, for me, that was sort of enlightening is that uh, giving myself some grace and some self-compassion and not being so hard on myself that, that, yeah, I drank a lot. It ruined some relationships. It 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 it, it squandered some opportunities. Uh, but it was also the greatest teacher of my life. Some of the failures have been the greatest teachers of my life. Um, that we have to remind ourselves that at the end of the day, we are we're, we're human beings. We're imperfect and unfinished. And to give ourselves some grace, that we will f- we will make bad decisions, and 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 we may not understand the consequences right away, or maybe we're fully aware of the consequences and do them anyways that we have to give others who are struggling, at the very least, um, you may not understand what they're going through, but you can empathize that you can see that they're going through something that's very difficult. And I I don't, I've never met a lot of, I haven't met a lot of addicts who have said, I love being an alcoholic. I love being addicted to drugs. I love not seeing my children because of the court order, or I love going to treatment. (laughs) They all recognize that this is not, how they didn't wake up one day and think, you know, I want to be a drug addict. Life has happened to them and having some compassion towards that human condition and not being dismissive or instantly label them as a drug addict. But I have a name. I have a family. I have a story. And that's important to understand. And it's it's easy. It's great to do that one on one. It's hard to do that when you think of things collectively. But I -hmm. think that's really the power of getting to know someone and their story, or at least understanding that it may be easy for you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but the person who's the addict may not even have boots. So don't just think that because something worked for you, that it's gonna work for someone else, or that you you gave up something, they should be able to as well.
0: And And so there um, is
1: no silver bullet, but having some compassion and empathy towards other people and the circumstances that they find themselves in, can actually go a long ways to um, maybe helping that person feeling and being seen that they're not invisible, that their problems are not invisible. And that there are yeah. people out there who really do care and love them, despite having these, these issues.
0: There are two main ways to change human behavior. And those, the two ways are to inspire or to scare. And I've got some friends that I know in my circle that have been told by a doctor that if they ever drink again, they'll be dead. Well, that, that, that's, that's not an inspirational thing. That's, that's a that's scare and it works. I mean, these people end up, a lot of them end up quit drinking. Um, but the inspiration part is where I like to try to focus on just because I'm an eternal optimist. So I run into issues, Ben, being too optimistic. Where people say, well, Jeff, I can't talk to you because you've just seemed to somehow be Teflon in this thing. And and you just seem to things just... And I'm, I'm like, well, that's the perception. But you didn't see me at three in the morning laying on the floor crying my guts out, you know. Uh-huh. You didn't see me after Seth died considering suicide, you know. You, you didn't see yeah. that. You see now, you see all this stuff I'm doing. But it took a lot of work for me to get where I'm at. It takes daily work for me to stay where I'm at. Because I know the lure to get pulled back into the the road of least resistance, Ben, is to not do the podcast, is to not write a second book, is to not, you know, um, have some other ideas that I have that are in my brain that I want to get out there to help people. That's, that's a road full of resistance, right? That's difficult, but that's kind of how I am. And I, I know there's people out there that just haven't found the right thing yet to get that switch turned on. We all have a switch. And I think at the end of the day, finding your why. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is your why? I, my why is extremely clear, concise, repeatable, and consistent. My why is three things. To help me first. To keep me alive. My my, my number one why is selfish. I don't want to die yet. Second why is to honor my son Seth. And the third why is to help others. So people look at me thinking, well, Jeff, you're out there helping all these people. Yeah, but you know what? By talking to Ben for an hour, I became a better person today. I became a better human being today in the conversation we had. And that benefited me that when I get off this conversation, I'm going to go finish a blog that I didn't want to do yesterday. So these little steps are what I'm finding out is what helps me get through my day. So everybody listening to this that's battling something, and, you know, I've had three guests on my show, Ben, that have been women that have been sexually abused. And I know there's plenty of men out there that have been sexually abused. That's a whole different set of trauma than dealing with giving up alcohol. Um, bearing a child is a whole different set of trauma than giving up alcohol. Right. They're not any better or worse. They're just different. So part of my... Part of my motivation, Ben, is to is to find help people find their why, you know. So what's your why?
1: Wow, I you know, that's a it's a very simple question <laughs> and the and the answers can be profound. You know, I try and think of my why. Um, and it is it's it's to I, I think ultimately it's to help others, but it's recognizing um, it's having a purpose. And I really love in your book, I want to kind of get back to it because it'll help me sort of answer your question. Uh, And I've heard it in a lot of other scenarios as well about the uh, you know, when they do the, the, the safety check on the, on an airline, when they say put your mask on before helping others, it's you can't, you, you have to be able in order to help other people in that scenario, you have to have your mask on first. Now right. my instant reaction would be I got to get them on my kids, and right? So, but right. If I, but if I'm not whole, if I'm not healthy, if I'm not capable and able, they won't survive that, right? So it's right. Th- there is that 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 selfishness of of I, I need to take care of myself first because then that allows me to take care of others. My why is sort of. Um, I want to find the ripple, right? I want to be that little pebble that drops in the water and creates that ripple um, <laughs> to impact others. And 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 how far can those those ripples go? And it's it's sometimes it's just being that pebble. And I'm laughing and, and, for a reason,
0: Ben. I'm laughing for a reason. You said we're soul brothers. This is my only tattoo.
1: Yeah. And it's
0: and it's water here, and it's the pebble hitting the water, and this is the living in the moment symbol. And the date here is ten four sixteen in Roman numerals, so that's the date of Seth's death. Roman numerals represents my son Roman. that's his first Roman. name, mm-hmm. plus Roman and I scuba dive, so the blueness gets darker as you go into the ocean, and then this represents living in the moment, and then the middle is a golf ball represents my son Ian golfing. so I've got all three of my boys in here, and I had a friend of the family that designed this that that grew up with us and and know Seth and so to me. When you said pebbles, I'm like, you just proved that we are soul brothers. Yeah. (laughs) I have a tattoo that says living in the moment, you know?
1: Yeah. And that's sort of, and I need to refine my why and my why is is unfinished, right? So, but it is really dedicated towards helping myself and others. And I also scuba dive. I scuba dived with my my father. We we both got certified together. Um, I haven't dived in a while, but uh, you and I, I, I'm so happy we've connected in ways. Um, I don't think we would have crossed paths if it wasn't for um, what's happened in your life. I, I, right. I, I'm rem- I'm I'm just reminded and and in awe of sometimes the small, insignificant, inconsequential decisions that lead mm-hmm. people to meet to mm-hmm. you know events unfold, and you look back and think, "How did I get here?" And it's just a series of events that we either have control or not you and I've read your book and I was just like, we both meditate. Viktor Frankl's book is on my desk. (laughs) His, his quote about the silence between two thoughts that between stimulus and response. And and that gap is that to me, gives me goosebumps thinking about it all the time. Right. Um, my grand, uh, it's just, I, I, I so appreciate someone like you who had, who offers themselves to the world through their vulnerability, and also displaying their strength, but saying that strength comes with a lot of self care and vulnerability and heartache. But I've also built myself up to be in an, you, you say you've, you've always, it's not something new found. And even if it was right. new found it, be, it'd be wonderful, but you've always right. been an optimist. Right. And I think most people aren't necessarily wired that way. And it may be uncomfortable for them, but it's always amazing to be around people who see the light or through a, a lens or a perspective that other people just may not see, it, it's, it's a wonderful presence to be around, Jeff. It's your ultimate gift. And well, this a, has uh, just been one of the best uses of an hour I've ever had.
0: Well, I, I'm very excited to get this out there and replay this and re re-broadcast it. And um, I had a really, a new acquaintance of mine and I've only known him for a couple of weeks. And he's just been one of these people you meet, Ben, that you feel like you went to high school with, you know, and I kind of feel that way with you. I feel that way with you, but I've I've known you for a couple of years. But but this guy said, you know, Jeff, after I got to kind of know your story a little bit and I've met other people like you that uh, have lost like Steve Grant, for example, he's lost his only two boys and he's been on my show before. And he said, you found a way to become a better man, not a bitter man. Mm. And I thought, wow, that, that's, another, that's another, that's another, that's another goosebump phrase
1: yeah. that I have
0: now, I have now written on my wall above my computer. Jeff, you're a better man, not a bitter man. So someone asked me, well, you know, you, you did, you had the worst thing possible happen to you. I'd rather have had stage four cancer and died to have mm. Seth still here. I, I would right. give that up in two seconds. But that, that didn't happen. So how did I, figure out a way. If I did yet, I'm still constantly learning. And I have, you know, I step back a lot. Then I just have to make sure I take more steps forward than I am stepping back, you know. But that phrase Mike said was like, man, that is so true. And so there, no matter what someone's been through, there's a, there's uh, an individual on my podcast named Danielle McLean that you need to go back and listen to some of my podcasts, uh, Ben. Mm -hmm she was uh had had a raped at 16 uh drug addict incarcerated prostitution uh all the reasons why she could have just given up on life and probably killed herself yet she went back to college in her 30s got an engineering degree and now she runs her own aerospace engineering company yeah i mean so it makes my story look like nothing it's like you know um I can't even I can't even fathom what it's like to be sexually molested. So people have been down that road; they have a whole different view on adversity and living undeterred. Um, people can say people can say, "Well, Jeff, I understand your pain." I'm like, "No, you don't." Until you've lost a child, it, 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 you you cannot understand. Yet I can't understand what it's like to be sexually molested because I never have been. So I need to, I need to make sure when I talk to people that have had traumatic you know events that I can frame it in a way. Where I'm not saying, well, I understand, like brushing it off. Right. I don't understand. Tell me, tell me, make me understand what it's like, because I don't know what it's like. And that's what I think people going through trauma want to hear. They don't want to hear, oh, you got this, Ben. You're a tough guy, Ben. Uh, you know, go, you know, go, go to church and pray to your God, Ben. He'll take care. of you. It's like people don't want to hear that. They they want to no. tell their story, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right, and and they want to do it on their terms as well, and and I mm-hmm. think because people are not well-versed in how to deal with someone who's grieving or who's gone through a traumatic event. Oftentimes I think they say things be- to make themselves feel better. Right. right. Like I lost my father and I, and, and, and anyone who's lost like a loved one, you know, they'll say, you, you know, like, oh, it happened for a reason or yeah. you'll be better. Are you okay? That's the worst thing is, are you okay? It's like, no, I'm right. Right. We're just not, we just don't know the language of grief and trauma and how to, you want to sort of sympathize with them. And it's like, you don't know what I'm going through, but it's, it kind of comes back to that empathy and self-compassion and compassion Mm -hmm. towards others. Like I may not know what you're going through, but I can empathize as another human being that what you've gone through is something I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. And it's also something I don't understand. So help me learn. I can't say- I I know, I know what you've gone through. No, you don't. You have literally no idea. And even if someone has a similar experience, we all go through trauma very differently and grief and how, and and how fluid grief and trauma is. And, and, uh, and so I, I think you've keyed in on something really, really important and that's facilitating conversations so that people can tell their story. And so that others who have, I'll never know what it's like to have been Like that woman you just described going through all those life events i will never understand that right i i I will never have the capacity to but i know that i have the capacity to love and i know that i have the capacity to listen and want to hear someone teach me about what they've gone through i'll never be able to understand it but at least i'll be able to know and understand their story and how they've become who they are because of that and and I, So I think a lot of it is conversations to help people better listen and not immediately jump to, I have a solution, or you're going to be fine, or you seem like a really great person, you have a great family, You'll, this is just a bump in the road. It's like, then you've just dismissed me. You've just dismissed all of my issues. And I think being dismissed is one of the worst feelings.
0: You know it's crazy we we're, we're an hour and seven minutes. I told you we'd have no problem talking about stuff. um yeah. this is great it, again it's it's my podcast. I can go as long as I want um but uh one thing I want to tell you that's worked with me with mindfulness meditation that i i kind of an exercise that I got, and I practiced this the other day at a meeting when I had six people at, on a table because what's what do we do in a meeting we We don't normally kind of think of what people are looking, what do we look like? you know how's my hair? Um, you know, is that zit on my chin still? Is my shirt wrinkled? And an exercise I've been working on, Ben, is look around that room and look at each person for a while and think to myself, I wonder what their stuff is. I wonder what their story. I wonder what problems they have right now today. So I'm, I'm changing the frame. From not all about me at the meeting, but going around the room slowly, taking five minutes of looking at each people are they are they still married? Are they going through a divorce? do they have children do, is there are their parents sick? um did they do, are they happy with their job? you know are they fighting with their spouse? and you play this little game with each people, and you instantaneously remember that you know we're we're all we're all fricking the same and and at the end of the day, we're we're not in a canoe going across the ocean fighting our individual battles. We're in a freaking massive boat with millions of people and we all have the same problems. Some are just a little more um, you know, mm-hmm. magnified than others, but we're all in this together. And and that's that's where I think a good place to to wrap this up. Um, one thing I want to ask you is where can people reach you? Uh, I know on LinkedIn, that's probably, and Facebook is where I see you the most. And what's the next um, the next stage for you? Um, what are some of your aspirations coming up?
1: So people, that, thank you for, for giving me the opportunity uh, to have people reach out to me. So certainly Facebook under Ben Rogers or LinkedIn, uh, they can contact me uh, at the Board of Supervisors at ben.rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, at lindcounty.org. They can call me on my personal cell phone 319-573-8295. and um, I mean I give out my uh, my cell phone's publicly available, and I love yeah. talking with people about any issue on on anything. And and so what's next for me? I mean plan. I mean as a financial advisor, you'll you'll find this funny. Plan A is the Powerball. <laughs> yeah, and I don't I don't have a Plan B yet.
0: Cross off. Oh well, then you're <laughs> <Yeah>. in trouble. <laughs> you'll make it up you as know, you go. <laughs>
1: I'll make it up as I go. I mean, my, my aspirations um, are to continue in this role as, as long as I, you know, as people will have me or as long as I can be effective because I really want to, I'm dealing, I, I want to create a new homeless shelter in Cedar Rapids. So I'm really invested in homeless issues, creating a children's system for mental health that gives parents and, and, and juveniles and children a gateway into either prevention or treatment or some kind of Mental Health Access Center for Children, um, hmm. you know, and I really aspire just to be a, a good a, a good reliable safe father for my children, uh, a, a good husband. Uh, I'm a son to to a wonderful mother, and and my aspirations are really to to just continue sort of what my grandfather. So he's my grandfather's over this shoulder, and my father's over this shoulder. Uh-huh. And my uh-huh. grandfather used to ask my father and and his my, and my aunt and uncle, um, when they were growing up, what did you do to make the world a better place today? Or what did you do to make this sliver of the universe that you live in a better place? And my, my and my parent, my dad actually, they, he expected an answer. And my dad then mm. a- asked my brother and I that, and it, that sort of stayed with me. And, and it's sort of an open question. It's what am I doing today to make this world that I live in this little sliver of the universe, I occupy a better place. And that's, that's my asp- aspiration and goals. Cause it's not, achieving some level of professional credentials or some office or some job title or some salary. Uh, Those are all great. But it is, um, what am I doing to make this world a better place for my children, and more importantly, for other people's children? Uh, Because it's not just about myself, it really, Muhammad Ali had this the best poem, it's considered one of the shortest poems in history. In 1968, he was giving the commencement address to Harvard. And you know, Muhammad Ali was famous for a lot of his poetry. Or a lot of, you know, rhyming, particularly when he would want to get in his opponent's heads. And so someone yelled out, give us a poem, Muhammad. And he sat there for a second and he said, me, we, and it's something Mm. that's guided me. It's, It's about ourselves, but also the collective. And so my aspiration is to always sort of maintain that focus of trying to improve myself and that of other people that I've never met.
0: Well, I know you enjoyed my book, and I'm looking forward to reading your book someday.
1: Right on. I, I, I'm I'm, going to read this book again. I mean, I devoured it. I loved it. You and I are, we both like Stoicism and Buddhism, and we have similar mm-hmm. life philosophies. But as I wrote to you, this was so honest and raw and inspiring that I could see how a book like this can be transformational, not only for the person writing it, but for the person yeah. reading it, that... Um, You don't have to know someone who's died of of a tragic overdose. Absolutely. There's a lot of great life lessons in here and your 12 daily steps Mm -hmm. I I thought were phenomenal. And some, and some of them I'm, I'm incorporating into my life and certainly, you know, never waste a good failure and have goals, but not at the expense of living in the moment. Don't, don't forget about what's in front of you right now. And, and Jeff, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing Seth's story your story um, your children and and just being who you are uh, has really given me and others I think a lot of source of strength
0: well I know people watching this uh, will be will be moved as well um, well listen man I, I uh, have enjoyed this immensely I never know how these are gonna go when I start them but um, but uh, uh, I, I value your your friendship and I um, I'm in awe of what you're doing, not just personally, but the civic involvement and how you're trying to change lives is, um, is uh, something to be admired. And I think people coming up, uh, you have definitely kind of set that template out there that um, it's okay to be a public figure and to be vulnerable at the same time. But, um, well, listen, I'll let you go. Um, thanks again for being on the Living Undeterred podcast. And I'm, I'm sure uh, I'll be seeing you shortly. So, again, thanks a lot, Ben Rogers, for being a guest. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it.